I may have forgotten to mention this, but it's important. Before the battle, Red Hook sent two sailors to Lockhaven as quick as any mouse has ever gone over land and sea. They brought word that Savash had declared their war, and the bundle of coded pages that Velvet passed on to Zeke. Gwendolyn sent the message out on the back of hares, in the feet of robins, and on the wing of that bat Lily was so fond of, moving Rosard's plans into motion. Of course, none of us knew that he was already gone. Anyhow, that's when the war started for us. When the oyster cracker landed at Dawnrock, a message from Gwendolyn was already waiting for them. Tander was not only to remain her captain, but to coordinate a navy of volunteers. They first convened in the Caligaro outpost under a slate-gray sky. Tander, around the room are several sailors, fisher mice, even a few patriotic pirates. Uh, some faces are new to you, some you might have seen in passing in your childhood in Port Sumac, uh, but a few you've encountered in your time as a guards mouse, including uh, Thom, the captain that sailed you to this very place in your first season as a tenderpaw, uh, and also Sloane, the smuggler captain who stabbed you that one time. Uh, she's a little less pleased to see you uh, at the head of the table and is talking with her crewmate, uh, uh, the smuggler Bagan. Uh, downstairs, Conrad, the watcher of Caligaro, is waiting for all these mice to get out of his rooms. As the, the chatter begins to die down, nearly all eyes are on you to begin. What do you do? Tanda's going to look around the room, think about everything that's led him to this point. He's going to stand up on a table and say, All right, you salty sea dogs. There's weasels a-coming. And I think you all know, if we just sit here and let that happen, we're all going to be out of work or worse. So we have to build a navy out of nothing and keep them out of our waters. Are you with me? Uh, Thom just, like, starts to cheer, like, yeah, here, here, and there's not a lot of agreement. There, there's, uh, generally, as you look around, everyone agrees, yes, something ought to be done, and it ought to be coordinated, but when you get down to it, everybody's raising objections, like, who's responsible for what, and the, the undercurrent is... Should a guard's mouse so young be the one leading, like, a, a number of these uh, uh, mice have been sailing much longer than, than you've been alive, Tander. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a, a lack of confidence in, in the room. I wonder how many of them have been sailing in wartime versus peacetime? There have been on and off skirmishes every, you know... 10 years or so uh, is when things boil over. I don't know if any of them became like full wars at sea. You know, mm-hmm. the Winter War of 1149 is the biggest scale conflict in any of its participants' lifetimes, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly what I thought. But what we're dealing with here, this ain't, a, this ain't some local scuffle over fishing rights. This ain't some band of pirates no offense to the pirates in the room. <laughs> this is do or die. We either do something now, or we're going to be dead 
we're on the run for the rest of our lives. Uh, uh, Harford, of course, your, your crew is here with you, at least some of representatives. So Harford, the massive hunter, stands up and and sort of gives witness to, to like, I fought side by side with Tanter here with a small number of mice, uh, hardly more than you could count on a single paw. We crumbled the overlord's greatest port. The war at sea may be difficult, but it has already been made easier by this one mouse's sword. This this is something that impresses the, the people around. What while his his friend uh, Loomis is like, yeah, and 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 anybody who plays ball with things as they are on the table, uh, you're you're in a better uh, position to negotiate once uh, once other opportunities come, uh, uh, once victory is won. You know, pardons, port fees, all sorts of things could be up for grabs in in uh, the new order of things. So, we have any more objections? Again, there, there's, like, murmurs around the table. As more and more of these uh, uh, captains are coming around to, like, want to sign on the charter for, for the Navy of Volunteers, Sloan again tries to stand up and say, I, we're not here to deny the, the necessity of such a body. I'm, I merely think some of us would like to look at the small print and, and make sure that our places are uh, something for which we, we are capable, let alone willing. And, and while she is trying to, to try to uh, get out more, you know, considerations, some, some favored amendments for, for her and hers, uh, an alarm goes up, a bell clamors. It is Conrad's signal from below. And uh, as you rush to the window and look out at sea, you see three weasels with lit torches swimming toward the collected anchored ships. Those that rush to the other windows and look inland see that the dead winter brush on shore is moving, hiding an unknown number of weasel hunters. Tander, this is a much more familiar situation you find yourself in. What do you do? Surrounded on all sides by enemies. To the ships, lads. When you say lads, do you mean all assembled or merely like the crew of the cracker? Well, I mean, if you got a boat and a sword, <laughs> then you can be a lad. Okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, either or, really. Uh, uh, I think we next see you, like, in an improvised rowboat, right, that, that you took from uh, uh, the cracker to shore, that uh, Harford is, is heaving and rowing with his great strength while you stand on the prow and, and get a look. Yes, there, there are weasels trying to torch every uh, a boat that can burn. Uh, how, how flammable is your ship as it is totally encrusted in, in seashells? I'm not sure, but I think they're willing to try and find out. Uh, but, but yeah, a lot of your new allies are not so, so lucky. The, the odd ship made out of an upturned tortoise shell is looking very good right now, but most of them, uh, uh, most of them are, of course, wood uh, construction and, and in theory, flammable. Oh, first things first, we gotta stop the weasels from sabotaging our ships. What what is Tander's trademark uh, uh, flair for the dramatic look like in this in this battle? I think there should definitely be a scene where Tander has a grappling hook and he like swings it, latches on to the to the rigging of a ship of a bigger ship, so he can swing <laughs> from ship to ship, swing down okay. to the shore to the water's edge and 
cut down weasel as they're trying to apply their fire to the ships. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. So, so with Harford's heaving, you've gotten close enough to a ship for, for the line on your grappling hook to catch it. But uh, uh, you don't just swing under your own power. He pitches you like a softball. <laughs> For for that uh, a surprising burst of of speed uh, uh, and force as, as like yeah Tander swings in a long arc just like slashing weasels on the wrist as as they uh, uh, drop their their torches harmlessly into the drink. That's a fantastic opening move. Nice. So if we got the weasels the saboteurs out of the way, we need to turn our attention mm-hmm. to the ones on the shore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think we need to split up our forces, surround the weasels that had surrounded us, and cut off their escape. <laughs> so, so yeah, Tander is barking out orders not only to his own ship, but the uh, collected ships around him, whose captains are also taking up whatever action that that they saw necessary. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so yes, these these stealthy saboteurs, yes, are are surrounded, are cut off, but like. As Tander points his rapier back to shore, a number of, of ships and, and uh, longboats uh, uh, follow his command to head back toward the Tower of Caligero and the battle on land surrounding it. So, so as you approach, there, uh, Thom is there. Thom thought uh, uh, to head toward the greater number uh, uh, and you know trust the, this little fella to, to handle the matters at sea. Uh, but it's in t- it's completely uncoordinated. There is like a full hunting party, uh, at at least of weasels, but but they have divided the the mouse defenders of Caligero here in, into small pockets that are acting uh, uh, without without any sort of unity, without any sort of grand plan. Uh, Conrad, the peg-legged guard mouse, is is trying to to carve a space through the weasel lines with his hook and line, but it is not getting the assistance he needs uh, to be successful. Tander, this, this is the battle as you find it. What do you do? We need to coordinate. So we need to come up with a system of signaling orders to other ships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's see. What other skills can I use here? Um, I want to find. Uh, I want to find some place to use Tander's ship building abilities. <laughs> and I don't know. Like maybe he could rig up some sort of a, a flag based system, a color system, or something. You know, swap, uh, swapping out colors on a flag to indicate like move forward or something or halt. It is. Or something. It's a good idea, but I don't know if it fits with the heat of battle. The heat of battle, true. There's a time crunch here. Mm. What about a messenger system? Like a way we can send mice from ship to ship to spread uh, orders. Okay. Okay. Yes. Uh, uh, I think you you bark that out to Loomis, and he just sort of like gives a, a two finger salute, and uh, uh, is is off with some of the Cracker crew who are fleet of feet mm-hmm. in order to to start, yeah, sending out orders and coordination before, uh, uh, to all of the the reinforcements that you just commanded back to shore to to meet this chaotic scene. Mm-hmm. Right now, all of the fighting is on land, right? Yeah, yeah. The the stealthy advance party of weasels has been rounded up, and uh, uh, I think fighting is still continuing on the ships, but they have it well in hand, uh, uh, just by by sheer force of numbers, right? Okay, so we need to find a way to support the the fighting on the ground from the sea. Yes, 
where, uh, in, if anything, the, the numbers are far more in the weasel's uh, uh, favor, at least until more of these mice you, you've ordered ashore arrive. Mm-hmm. What if we take, a, we take a page from the pirate playbook and uh, rustle up some special ammunition to fire at the, the weasel <laughs> lines? Like, a bit of a grape shot? Uh, I guess we don't have cannons, but, you know, trebuchet. Ah, the cracker does have cannons. Ah. It is unique in the entire setting for that. Incredible. Awesome. All right. Why don't we come up with some special shots, then? We can do the classic grape shot to take out mm-hmm, a... Mm-hmm. inflict massive damage on a wide range of enemies. We could... Uh, Tander would definitely come up with some sort of, like, uh, some sort of, like, payload that fires out of the cannon and opens up into the fishing nets that catch a bunch <laughs> of weasels. <laughs> Now, now, this is the sort of thing that I think uh, you absolutely would have a pre-arranged signal for, like mm-hmm. Tander flashes a, a flag of a certain color or waves his sword in a certain arc, mm-hmm. and the, the mice on the ship are like, oh, it's the signal. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, d- demonstrating that, yeah, it's, is it a big, ridiculous net shot? Yes, I like the idea. Okay, okay. I picture like a big, wide fishing net. It's got all kinds of like weights on it to hold them down, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. woven into it. This is something Dan Tander would definitely have like just had an inkling of, like the night before, and just like like scrounged together in a in a haze <laughs> of of shipbuilding. Some mice, uh, uh, I think they're even some of the survivors of your, your strike team on the Seaside Palace, are, are, have been, like, promoted because, you know, they're in with the boss and, and are, are now, like, running the, the cannons. And they're like, okay, shrug, let's, let's try it. That's fine. I made, they, the, they I made s- these shots myself. You can toss them in the cannon. It's fine. <laughs> And so they begin to load the cannons with these special shots that have, like, holes born in them to, to carry cable, and on that cable is strung uh, uh, this wide net, and so... Mm-hmm. This stuff's for catching fish, and you know how f- big a fish is compared to a mouse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Crabs and all that, like, we get, this, is, this is sturdy stuff. This will work. And so the, the net spreads wide and, and covers... Uh, at least a third of the weasels that, that are visible. Some uh, uh, mice are caught in it, but have the wherewithal to, to wriggle out of the holes, holes uh, uh, in the netting that are not quite large enough for a weasel to, to squirm out of quite so easily. So yes, I between... definitely, I definitely thought of that when I was doing this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so between this uh, ensnaring surprise and uh, by, by now, yes, the, the, mice you've been leading have made landfall uh, uh, yourself included and are like getting just a crash course in hand signals uh, uh, for, and, and whistles from Loomis. The, the numbers advantage has swung hard in a moment to uh, uh, the defenders, to uh, uh, the mice. Excellent. So uh, are we still in the fight? Are there, are there any more like beats of the fight you want? I mean, I would definitely see like the ship showing up, sending out reinforcements, firing off the net. Like, that'd be, like, a big, like, climactic moment in the battle. Maybe not exactly the end. I could definitely see, like, at this point, like, things have swing, swung enough that the, all the mice can disembark, join the fight in the fray. I'm sure Tanner would love to get in there himself in person. Maybe he would... Of course, <laughs> of course. I mean, Tanner would, like, he would, like, put himself on the trebuchet and shoot himself into the fire, into the fighting... <laughs> 
if it was safe to do so. I'm surprised we never did that in all this time. The special shot is myself. Yes. But yeah, I, I think that, that the the ship alone would be a, a pretty good big moment. And I, I think that Tetan would definitely want to like help take charge of uh, finishing off and, and rounding up any prisoners that would be left behind after this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The heat of battle has subsided. The noise has quieted. Uh, the the surprise attack was uh, successfully defended against with uh, uh, minimal losses. Those weasels that were captured, preparations are being made to to ransom them back to Dark Heather, uh, uh, and then they'll be cared for in the meantime. And as uh, uh, all the captains collect themselves. Uh, uh, after you know, doing head counts and, and taking stock of uh, uh, their own individual losses, uh, the, you, you remember that yes, the, the charter of the Navy of Volunteers is still unsigned. We, you were a, perhaps about to do that when the bell chimed. Uh, as uh, Conrad is is busy checking to make sure that uh, his his roof isn't caving in any more than it was yesterday. So, so that is when uh, Thom, captain of the cargo ship Thom, with his very ornate but uh, uh, not particularly large hat, uh, as I recall. <laughs> well, our, our ranking system is defined by your hat. So Tander is obviously mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. leader. Because he has the biggest brim, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, he, he goes up to, to some of those who, who still had reservations and was like, this is what I've been telling you about this young kid. It's, there's no denying he lacks experience on the seas, but uh, I figure that's where you and I come in, because uh, what he's got, he's got an instinct, and he's certainly got a flair. He's got and, spunk. Uh, <laughs> and what he's got more than anybody uh, uh, that I'd want to follow in days like this is a willingness to dive in and take a risk with thought only for the possibility of, of victory on the other end. He clearly wouldn't ask us to do a thing that he wouldn't do himself. Uh, that would be a that'd be a great moment if, as the as this is being said, cut, shot cuts to Tander standing like on maybe on like the, the 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 front end of his ship, standing looking out to the sun, plaid scarf and his cape billowing in the wind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe his hat falls off for a brief second, but he catches it and turns it into a <laughs> turns it into a swift like twirl, like he meant to do that, and then he. Pulls out his sword, makes a heroic pose, and then kind of realizes nobody's watching, but it's okay. Set out. He's done what he set out to do. So following from this day, the, the Navy of Volunteers was founded and uh, lasted even after the seas froze over through the war, uh, all the way until the very last day of 1149, and no farther. Oh, you think these guys are going to agree to anything after the, the war is over? Come on, come on. Yeah, you, you, you never keep the, these, bunch of, these bunch of sea dogs in line forever, but <laughs> you know, Tander, will be, Tander will be there to watch over the waters. Wild Seed was a hive of activity during the Winter War. More than two days of travel from any known weasel tunnel, built half a day from Lockhaven, and too new to be known by the enemy. It was a safe staging point, a brand new construction when the future was at stake. It was a point of pride and inspiration, and they were vital in helping Lockhaven outlast the siege. Abram made sure supplies were accounted for, 
and that everything was in its place and prepared to meet the needs of the war effort. Tufton kept an eye on everyone and often made the trip to Lockhaven herself. Chester kept his home open to anyone who couldn't journey farther than the first door they saw. What a mess Clove found herself in. The turncoat made a plan too clever by half, so airtight there wasn't an escape hatch. Watching that bird attack the guard's mice was fun enough, aside for the chance of flaming death. Moving this mayor and her troops was now top priority. The next day, keeping them from weasel ambush was top priority. And then came foraging for supplies, and then raiding enemy supply lines, and before she knew it, Clove had a title and authority. What a mess indeed. Finn walked halfway across the territories to find a new home when there was room enough for all of his children to take up the family trade. Six seasons later, three of his children heard the call to defend the territories. One of them made it back to that new home. To mobilize the territories is difficult. To do it in winter, when mice ought to be safe and sealed inside their homes and settlements, is near impossible. It takes an expert tracker to lead mice on journeys where every landmark is buried under sheets of snow. This has taken Zeke to the southeast, where he has a moment in Shorestone with the current proprietor of the Sanded Jug. Zeke, Kristoff has convinced you to take a walk with him through the ornate arched arcade of artisan stalls. You can't help but notice the pieces made today are much less decorative than on your previous visits, and just about everything looks to be for the war effort. Uh, but you've been talking about, you know, all manner of things, and we joined the, the conversation midway where he asked, but come on, I can't believe that. I'm Isolde, I met her. Are you sure? I guess that we'll never really be sure, because we weren't there, but you think you know somebody, and then you hear something like that. I don't know if we'll ever see her again. But, uh, this is, you know, uh, Zeke. Zeke is, uh, is very nervous. Uh, more nervous than usual, uh, tonight. That's saying something. And that's, that's saying something for Zeke. He's been, you know, like, uh, touching his, his cloak and messing with his cool knife and, and stuff like that. And, um, saying stuff like, wow, the snow looks beautiful tonight. <laughs> and other, th- and other things that, that Zeke, uh, doesn't normally say. He's, uh, sweating, even though it's quite cold outside. As they round the turn, Zeke, uh, Zeke's stuttering and saying, uh, but, you know, uh, Kristoff, there's, um, <clears throat> uh, there's something. There's something I really. I've. I, you know. Well, I'm not going to be uh, here in in Shorestone for for too much longer. And and um, uh, there's something He's I smiling. wanted. To, He's smiling and just waiting. <laughs> there's there's something I I just I wanted uh, to uh, to to ask to talk to you about. Um. See. <clears throat> uh, See. So so starts like yeah. He's like touch. He's like looking in all the pouches on his belt. He like doesn't know where it is. While Zeke is discovering uh, uh, just how much a, a mouse can sweat from nerves alone, Kristoff uh, uh, stops and and uh, he grabs his paws and drops down on one knee and says, "I want to marry you, Zeke. We can wait until after this is over. We can do it tonight. I do not care. But I will marry you, Zeke, and we will be together for as long as I live." 
Zeke um, looks at him and, and is like, does, does Zeke just, oh, does he just say, oh, fuck, not, no, I mean, Zeke doesn't say, oh, fuck, um, he, he, he has that look on his face, in his mind, oh, fuck, because, of course, he imagined it going the other way, where he was the one that was gonna go, go down on one knee, and, and pop the question, and now here he is, um, so I think- Oh, there was no question. <laughs> Yeah, there was no question. So Zeke um, just starts to go into autopilot, and he also kneels down on the ground. And now they're oh. both kneeling and looking at each other. Um, and uh, and Zeke, tears welling up in his eyes, finally finds the thing in his belt that he was going to pull out. And uh, and he takes out a, a an engagement necklace or a marriage necklace um, and, and mm-hmm. holds it up in the air in one paw, sort of crunched uh, together, you know, not like <laughs> nicely. <laughs> um, but enough that Kristoff uh, that can see that it is clearly meant for a proposal, um, that it is a... Um, it has a, a pendant, uh, a carved wooden pendant that uh, looks like the, the sun rising over a field of hops and sort of a wide rectangular pendant, sort of sort of the logo, uh, when I was describing it to Grant, sort of the logo that you would see on a product that's sold at Whole Foods. Um, and uh, <laughs> Zeke has carved, carved it himself, of course, during his travels and put it on a, uh, a braided cord. Uh, maybe there's some beads in there just to make it a little fancy, but um, the main thing is that it was made with love. Kristoff uh, is is smiling, uh, and he will not be able to stop himself for hours, even if he tries. Uh, his eyes are starting to well up, and he <laughs> he laughs, uh, but he can't manage to get any words out until uh, uh, he brings Zeke further down the road, where you see uh, a silversmith just uh, uh, buffing something. And uh, th- there is just an exchange of, of glances with Kristoff, and he brings out the finished piece. There is a, a long braided cord uh, marked with like brass beads, like half a fist size at regular intervals. And uh, that, that buffed bit is a pendant, and it is a, itself a carving. It shows an image of Zeke's cool knife, the, the knife he got from his father, but broken and then welded back together. And that is surrounded in a wreath of irises. Uh, uh, the, the first things Kristoff has managed to say af- after this went, if he's honest with himself, kind of how he expected. <laughs> is uh, It's... It, it's it's sturdy. You can work with it. The the beads are at a, a regular interval for taking measurements or surveying. Uh, uh, it's it's pretty long to be worn as a necklace. But if you put it over one sh- shoulder like a sash, I think it will look real smart on you. Aww, <laughs> I love that beads for taking measurements. Zeke is like, ah, yes, of course, ten centimeters apart exactly. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> and um, and he start- I think that's what Zeke does. I think he starts like. Um, like again, like agreeing and like talking about like the practical uses of it. Like he was buying like a weapon or something, and like doesn't know what to say about it because it's real. It's really, it's really happening. It's really happening right now. Mm-hmm. It's really mm-hmm. happening. Um, something that they've both wanted for a long time, but now it's real and it's really happening. And uh, it is both easy and incredibly the most that he has ever 
experienced at once. Um, <laughs> I think they probably, in that moment, uh, put the uh, necklaces over each other mm-hmm. and hold hands, look into each other's eyes. Uh, the the, bla- the blacksmith <laughs> that is there um, maybe is also crying. I don't know. Um, <laughs> is the blacksmith one of Kristoff's friends? Uh, silversmith, and yeah, oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. So Christoph would be friends with a silversmith for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the 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 cord was uh, uh, was woven uh, uh, with the help of a new friend he made in town, Triss. Uh, she's also a friend of Sable, for the record. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's every all of them are invited to the wedding. I'm sure this is all stuff that that is coming up in the conversations later. But the first, the first thing Kristoff has to to ask you once you both get your sort of composure and realize that's that's it, it's done, it happened, it's it's real. Is who, who do we tell first? <laughs> yeah, I think they look at each other and they start laughing. Like they're both laughing now, and. Uh, uh, who's who's nearby? Back, I mean, I think they go back to the sanded jug, and um, probably Kristoff's friends who live in Shorestone mm-hmm, are, mm-hmm. are probably there. They're already there. They're there when they come back in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and so so you get to meet Tris. She'd be there. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. That's, it seems like they would. Uh, it would be a nice meeting. Then seems like it would. They, yeah, would, they would yeah. have a nice time. Zeke, probably pretty overwhelmed. I think a lot of Kristoff's friends he has obviously met before. It's not like completely strangers to him, but because he's in the guard, yeah, they're yeah. not, I don't think they're super close. Um, right. It's it's just a matter of, you know, how, how many days of the year are, are you in Shorestone, right? Yeah. And and I think that... <laughs> and for Kristoff, it's all of them. Yeah, I think that, um, <laughs> so I think that as soon as like they walk in and there's like cheering and stuff and there's like definitely a couple or, or maybe like one like very very loud like ah oh, it's about time <laughs> <laughs> like everybody's really like yeah we get it already geez mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and it just devolves <laughs> people talking about what are your plans all this stuff like right away right because uh, they you know and and Kristoff probably already has <laughs> some ideas. Zeke, as usual, has zero ideas. <laughs> Not one thought. He didn't think he would make it this far. So as the celebration begins and 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 mice begin making plans to talk about what plans they need to make, <laughs> that's the stage we're at. Yeah, and I think Zeke... Zeke, like, at some point in the in the festivities, or maybe like after it's over, like at the end, I think they have a they have a quiet moment for Zeke to finally kind of say, like kind of make his like declaration um, and, and express his emotions more articulately. Um, and mm-hmm. and they have sort of a, a quiet aside where probably something along the lines of like Kristoff saying like, so you're gonna you're gonna do it. You know, you're, you're you're staying in the guard. You're you know this is gonna happen, and and we're we're gonna do this. And uh, and Zeke is like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do it together, and we're gonna make it through. Silently, like quietly acknowledging, like that. Yes, we are going. We're going to move forward with hope um, in a way that Zeke is not articulate enough to say, um, but that in that in that quiet moment with like a moonbeam coming through the window, you know. They move forward with hope. Every time your patrols took you here or the old place or 
the place before that. <laughs> we always talked about what would come, and I, I, I made my best guesses, but I never knew what what the future would hold. Except, except this, I knew we would make this. Thank you for believing that I could. I believe now too. Fulbert, Lord of Tunnelbone, sat waiting for dawn. He was to charge forward and draw out the defenders of Elmwood, exposing them to hidden troops from Tunnel Steel. It was a good plan, but he could not sleep all the same. That's why he saw his sister Isayo coming from down a tree, checking a pouch to be sure its contents were safe. He hated confronting Isayo. It always felt bad, even worse when he got his way. His argument was shorter than most, and Fulbert was sad to realize that didn't save his feelings either. She had retrieved a message hidden up high from Lily of the Mouse Guard. They had been writing each other about everything except the war. He recognized a few of the names in the mouse's gossip, and recognized his sister in her dreams. It hurt him most of all to burn the letter, but he would rather have a sister who lived to hate him than one who died because he failed to protect her. Jordan and Sheba had just started their new life together when it happened. News of war hit Jordan like her captors were coming back for her personally. They fought back with strong arms and heavy hammers. The watchtowers over Shaleboro, the port wall at Dawnrock, even the unbroken rampart at Pebblebrook was their doing. Their labors still stand, and the two became the first quarry laborers inducted into the Haven's Guild. You can't operate a business if your buyers become weasel food, so Tito Taylor got himself into the arms trade. The Smiths over the sea didn't care much for Oakgrave's latest hits, but the Coalition of the Coal Mountains sure did, so he made himself a stable route to fly. He tried to pass off intel with his deliveries to the territories, disguising what he saw from the skies as rumors from a reliable source. It didn't seem prudent to let it slip that he wasn't really from around here, not when mice were most paranoid about outsiders, and us versus them. Francisca has as many duties as any other warrior in this dreary winter, but has also taken a solemn quest of her very own. Somewhere in the expanse between Ivydale and Elmall, she hears a crunch of snow and stops. Then, a familiar voice rises from the darkness. You carry something they say belongs to me, but we both know it does not. Francisca, you are once again met by the Black Axe. He steps out from legend to speak to you. What do you do? Well, this entire time, Francisca has been trudging that fake Black Axe with her. <laughs> What has been the story? Like, have you kept it bound and people just, like, don't give it much mind? Or has it been seen much? What, what's it like carrying this forgery? I mean, I, she's probably tried to cover it at some point, but considering that she was seen with it in a spruce tuck, so... It's true. It's true. I mean, I'm sure that story has grown and, and spread. I mean... Normal winters, as we've said before, are really a time of everybody just, like, hunkering down. Uh, you know, things don't get delivered. The, the paths between settlements are, are practically barren. But this is a special winter. This, this is, for, for many reasons, a time when a lot of mice 
are, are uh, doing a lot of things they wouldn't normally do. So uh, I'm sure it's one of the most gossipful winters in the history of the territories. Well, after the whole incident with the crabs, I think Francesca's used to all these rumors flying at her. So mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. doing what she does best and trying to hide this. Have you been trying to like tell people that this is it is a tool and nothing more? This is a forgery. It's it's nice, but like don't get bent out of shape about it. Yeah. She's been very insistent on that part. <laughs> In fact, she's probably been carrying her regular axe as well, so that's probably to help sell. It was like, no, I'm not going to be using this. But I've already got one. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Kalina, uh, a name this mouse has not used for many years, but you are one of the very, very few to know it, offers out his paw because he, he knows why you've been looking for him. This fake has been out there, and I figured the only way to be rid of it for sure was to give it to the, the real Black Axe. Mm. Thank you, Francisca. You could have melted this down in, in any forge, you could have flung it into the sea, but no, you're correct. This does seem... Uh, he, he pauses a moment to find the word um, proper. Francisca just looks down a bit before she finally just looks up and says, Is there reason for being in the background. You've been active all this time, yet people assumed you dead. His ears twitch. He's like, active, I suppose. Uh, you, you see just how gray his fur has become. It seems somehow even more than when you saw him only a season or two ago. The one pauldron he wears his armor on his shoulder that has clearly saved that arm many times in his life and is hardly keeping itself together. More active now than I've been in many a year. Well, I wish to know what exactly I suppose you have your reasons for keeping that secret. Just the fact alone that you have been active does give me closure. He he sits down. He lights his pipe. He, he offers you a, a, a puff on it if you want. Oh god, I have not had a smoke all season. <laughs> Francisca the Moocher's back. <laughs> It keeps happening to you. (laughs) For some weeks, you have carried the weight of this iron. Imagine, imagine the weight of history. Imagine the weight of the blood that the real one has that this, this expert forgery does not share. It is a burden to be carried in secret. One that has fallen to me and that I believe must die with me. You know, when I was younger, I suppose I coveted the Black Axe. For as much as I was inspired by it, there was this part of me that truly wanted to wield it. And now, after years of seeking it, that is not my path. And I am perfectly fine with that. He smiles. You get the sense that it's a smile that has not been seen for a lifetime. Well, Francisca, you are a wiser guard mouse than any I knew in my day. I know not what I'm going to do in the future, but I suppose being in the guard has been the correct path. She just kind of looks up and recalls about the years that her own mom has been in, all the stories that she's told as well. You can tell the Black Axe is is moving to, to go, unseen, unnoticed in his very practiced way. Oh, uh, 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 without even looking up, though, Francisca's going to say, by the way... There is one other that's been seeking you, and I don't mean the Black Axe. 
from an unnoticed distance comes a mutual friend. Yeah. Francisca, who have you brought? Well, the person that she's talked to you about before, about the Black Axe and his last student, I guess, Lucas. Uh, the, the axes are stowed. Lucas does not know the secret of why his his former mentor disappeared that one day many, many years ago. But he does see his face yet again. Kellanaw once more, the black axe can wait for a moment, raises his paw to, to stop Lucas from saying anything foolish, and instead the two embrace as the snow lightly falls upon their whiskers. For what Lucas has taught Francisca over all these years, she wanted to repay him for granting him access, able to see his old master once again. The next time Francisca has a moment at camp, with a light and a pen, she's writing a letter. She has remembered her duties to the Haven Guild for the help they've given her, and she writes a small but direct letter. The Black Axe may be hard to find, but it still works. Baird took a bow to the north. Laird took a sword to the south. Flared and his halberd stayed home. Baird spotted a platoon of weasels and saved his comrades from doom. Laird saw no action at all, though he was ever vigilant. Flared fell into a weasel tunnel. Baird returned home, wounded. Laird was lost to hunger and disease. Flared survived, a changed mouse. The mice, formerly known as Duncan and Rosalie, owed their lives and their happiness to the guard. They felt an obligation to return east and support the war. What were now battlefields had once been their territory as smugglers. Their secret roots and practice skills made them excellent scouts. News came that weasel raiders had captured a wealthy mouse for ransom. Under cover of night, they snuck in the weasel camp, grabbed the captured mouse, and escaped. Their route was nearly discovered when the former hostage cried, My boy, my beautiful son! Rosalie would no longer be hunted, for she had saved Mr. Hodai's life. Duncan was no longer dead and could go home. Weasels told many stories on the march. Most were boasts, some were gossip. At least one was a ghost story. Once the abandoned ruin of Woodstuff's Grove sank into dereliction, the Witch of the Swamp arrived. She was a mouse once, but now she knew the language of spiders and could glide through trees silent as the grave. She could fire two bows at once, and to cross her eye was certain death. Superstitious soldiers would wear a scrap of velvet to ward her away. If Tension could keep a shifting load stationary, then Millicent the Architect knew she could find a way to make Tension move alone under great speed. This is how the Ballista entered the battlefield. Built to her specifications by Birchflow Mice, Half a dozen fired into the weasel column in the charge of Bonkstone. Yule Frost is no day of rest this year. Many mice who had never taken up arms before heard the call to defend their lands. Many of those passed through Lockhaven, where today Sable teaches what she's learned. 
The forms and technical points come from her induction. These novices wouldn't know what to do with Tander or Francisca's tips. The training dummy made from a crab shell is completely beyond them. But the advice comes from years of making her own mistakes. Sable, what is most important to you as their instructor today? Um, I think mercy uh, and like self-protection. I think that she's mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. trying to teach them like as a combat instructor necessarily to go for, for killing blows or anything. She's trying more to emphasize self-defense and the ability to recognize when you have an opponent outmatched and what do you do with that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I i think that she's she's <laughs> trying to kind of pardon the expression but weasel her way out of being a combat <laughs> instructor uh mm-hmm. while still being a combat instructor uh so so as it goes on as like they're going through like defensive postures uh uh a lot of blocking drills, a lot of parrying, uh, uh, and just, yeah, a lot of advice on, like, you, you don't win the fight by, by uh, uh, you know, killing. You win by not being killed. Yeah. You know? Uh, a- as that goes on, th- things are, are getting a, l- a little tiring. The sun has set. Uh, uh, it is winter, after all. And Marin knocks on the door. She has a tea kettle in hand and insists it is time for everyone to take a break. Sable, the sweat of sparring is now chilled by a draft coming from a window looking out on the bleak, cool, uh, snow-covered fields after dark on one of the shortest days of the year. And your partner is inviting you to unburden yourself. What do you do? Oh god, yeah, I'll take some tea. I'm tired. (laughs) I'm tired. I don't... Yeah, I think Sable kind of sighs and and it just says, you know, she doesn't particularly enjoy this part of training because it's not a hypothetical anymore she always thought that you were going to be using these combat techniques just exclusively against you know like snakes and owls and things that are are basically monsters to mice uh not against other creatures that she has come to understand Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I mean, Marin is one of, well, there's three mice in, in this whole hall that uh, have spent time living among the weasels and live to talk about it. Mm. Who knows where Lily's assigned right now? It, it might be just the two of you. <laughs> it's it's a lot harder for Sable to kind of throw herself into teaching and because um, it's something that she does generally really enjoy doing, but it's, you know... It just feels really different now that now that she knows it's it's hard to like kind of joyfully instruct you know near tender paws when they are going to go to war uh and it's, it's joyful for you you are cut out of something other than me i <laughs> like i don't get it either but she likes being a teacher like <laughs> she doesn't like it now but generally she's like oh you know I was, I was absolutely losing my mind just brewing the the medicine uh, uh, day in and day out. So yes, it was it was nice. It was a nice change when instead I started teaching new healers and, and teaching, but God, they asked some stupid questions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the stable says with like kind of a faraway look in her eyes, like yeah, I'm certain I did too. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, I mean, you gotta ask the stupid questions so that can get them out and then the good ones can start coming <laughs> she kind of like pats Marin's hand reassuringly yeah 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 
Oh, well, I guess, you know, just one, one step closer to finding what's actually right for me here. How's Marin settling in, I think, is... She's got, I mean, she, the, her, her whole deal is, you know, wanting to try everything, wanting to do anything. And so there, there's a, a bit of like an, an itch to, to get out and do things and wanderlust. And that's like a seasonal thing for, for her, her whole life. Mm. Like winter, Marin is not big on winter, you know, she, yeah. she, <laughs> uh, but she's, she's doing her best and yeah, having like, the, the turnover that is Lockhaven in wartime is actually helping with that. It never is the same day twice. Uh, so so she's like, we said we'd find our small adventures, and I'm looking because it helps me take uh, uh, my focus away from the big adventures as she just sort of waves off toward the west. Yeah. At this point, Sable suggests, like, going for a small trip on like just taking some time to sort of get away from Lockhaven and you know maybe Sable knows like some sort of like special like nature spot that Marin hasn't been to before <laughs> that she could like take her um and, and show her and it's you know it's not really the same as fully indulging in your wanderlust but it's definitely seeing something new so yeah absolutely let's go let's go yeah come on I, I've got your coat let's wait go. like now yes oh uh, okay. <laughs> You're already wearing your coat. It has been put on you. <laughs> I am going. <laughs> I am. I am being spontaneous. I'm being fun. <laughs> I'm going. As you lead the way, and you know, ha- have to just shrug and accept when when you're being followed while scurrying. There is a comment about how cute your butt is. You can't help it. <laughs> You've tried to stop her. It never. Nope. Not going to happen. It's not gonna <laughs> I kind of put up a fuss, but I don't actually mind it that much. Where where is this sort of a uh, uh, new spot? Is is it like a lookout? Is it a particular like uh, yeah. sort of enclave? Like, I, I think maybe are, are you high? Are you low? It's some sort of like elevated, like maybe it's some sort of like hill, or maybe something like that. But I, I'm just imagining somewhere like you know, night sky, wintry, and you can see like you know the moon kind of reflecting off the snow and. Mm-hmm. Um, just something very like clear and pretty. You were on like a hill that's like overlooking like a, a pond or something, you know. It's frozen over. That it's there's that really cool thing where like uh, there are some like evergreen branches that are partially above, partially below. They're just locked in place uh-huh. by the, by the ice on the surface. Oh, it's so cool. Love that. Uh, and and yeah, it is reflecting the the moon and some of the brighter stars on this clear clear night. Uh, there, there are like little snowflakes caught in in both of your whiskers, as you had to like crawl through some some tighter spots to to get up here. So, so Marin looks down, and like you can tell that she's she's enjoying this. She, she's we we talk a lot about her wild past, but now like the the new things to try that are left for her are the simple pleasures, you know. And so she she just smiles and like picks off a flake from from her her fur and flicks it away and just sort of smiles at you like what you've got a lucky kid you know that (laughs) (laughs) i mean i think i'm a lucky mouse (laughs) she's up to something you know (laughs) oh almost certainly sable uh i think kind of tries to dodge the 
the rest of that by just being like, oh, she's always up to something. <laughs> well, whatever it is, I trust her. She's got more sense than most mice twice her age. Yeah. Save all nonsense. Then says, yeah, I trust her too. <laughs> she'll, she'll be all right. I do miss her, though. Well, that's the job, right? I think I think she she lets herself have her one little her one little moment of oh like I, I miss <laughs> I miss my kid but then you know she she snuggles up to Marin and they they watch the sky a bit. So uh, as you you have a uh, quiet moment uh, uh, long enough for Marin to be sure you're alone. She just says, you know, I probably don't need to say this out loud except that I suppose I ought to, but I I forgive you for getting caught up in in that spear stuff. Let's be honest, for all I know, I did a mission or two for him and didn't even know it. That's that's how they worked, right? You I... might not need to say it out loud, but it does help to hear it. I think it's something that I probably might need to hear a few more times in my life. It's not really a easy thing to live with. Kind of just tr- trying to, I don't know, make up for it however I can. Okay, if there's if there's one thing that I'm never gonna get used to in in that building in Lockhaven, it's it's that inscription on the wall, right? It matters not what you fight, but what you fight for. I don't believe that shit. <laughs> I don't believe that shit for a second. It it matters it, it, what you fight. It, it fucking matter. matters. <laughs> and it, and why I, why I say that? I'm being polite. I'm not saying it when any of you other guard mice can hear, but. <laughs> I think the important thing is fighting the parts of yourself that disappoint you. It's able to like nod slowly with, you know, kind of the the look someone gets when uh, they're very clearly like, oh, I've just heard something very important. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I forgive you. And that's why I'm proud of you. Thank you. That really means a lot. <laughs> I, I didn't think people could kind of be proud of me, I guess. But thank you. My tail is frozen. Oh, let's go back. I'll, <laughs> I'll make us some tea and pastries. The next day begins, as so many others have. Uh, some of the traveling mice leave with the skills they've gained to go and, and defend the territories as they hoped, and they're replaced by others coming in along their journey to whatever battlefield they seek. One of those today is Edward. Edward has not done much travel out on the hard paths himself, especially not in these adverse conditions, being a bank president as he is. <laughs> but this is one of the familiar faces, and one that I don't think Sable was ever expecting to see. No, not in a million years. Yeah, she triple takes and <laughs> does not remember his name. Tell you what, I it, don't remember his voice, so yeah, we're even. And, and she... she <laughs> literally like says like you're the the bank guy <laughs> like out loud <laughs> what are what are you doing here well i can hardly pay the savage beast to leave our fine shores alone oh god <laughs> which one of these weapons is is the is the finest for piercing weasel flesh oh no we're not doing this <laughs> she's drags her paws down her face uh it's like what? No, really? What are you? What are you, you signed up for the guard? Is this the only reason you joined the guard? Because you want to kill things? Because if you did, then you can just turn around and leave now. That's not what the guard is about. 
the, the life of a guard's mouse is, is not for me. No, no, I, I have my own vocations to be sure. But but if war is to come to the territories, and surely it has, I, I shall be there with with blade drawn. I, I, I could not expect my, only my employees to fight. <laughs> Sorry, that's really good. She kind of like gives the guy a, a once over. Like, wh- what is his like? He looks like a banker. Like he's not—he's not an athlete. I'm assuming. Like he's no, not. No, no. Th- this is a, a mid to late forties guy who has only worked a desk in his life. Yeah. Okay. Like I'm imagine- Like he's—he's his arms are already kind of like shaking from trying to hold up one of the one of the training swords or something. Uh. I have a membership membership to a gymnasium in Doragift. <laughs> Oh no, sorry, I'm thinking about mice just like lifting little branches with like acorns <laughs> on the end or something. <laughs> Benching. Sorry, anyway. <laughs> Sable just kind of looks at him in disbelief and is like, holds up her hand, like, you know, kind of like pauses the, the lesson for a moment and is like, all right, g- come here. And kind of like motions him over just to have mm-hmm, have a little one-on-one talk. Why, why fight at all? There are, do you know there are other ways that you can help? And there are other ways you can protect yourself, if that's what you're I, worried about. I remember you. Yes, yes. After the fire. You yes, just now you. remembered me. <laughs> Th- there were a lot of people pitching in after the fire, but you were the—you f- were among the first. Fantastic. But you asked me whether I, I just wanted to, to make noise or take action to help. Well, here I am helping in the most direct way I can fathom. I've I've sent capital toward uh, uh, feeding various militias and and arming them, but uh, uh, it's it's simply not enough. As as long as I have strength in my arm and, and breath in my lungs, and he like beats his chest with with a, a balled up paw. Uh, I I feel like her face like kind of she's like oh like nice when he when he starts to say you know that he sent capital and then her face falls again when he says to to militias and the uh, you know she, she's like oh, God damn it. <laughs> um we were so close. Uh, but she asks him, people who, who, you know, suddenly want to fight like this and, and take up arms, you know, it's, it's because you're, you're afraid of something and you have something that you want to protect and very much. And I, I just want to, I want to know what that is for you. What, what is it that you feel so strongly about that you want to protect that you would, you know, turn to this after not having held a sword before in your life? Our, our way of life the, the we have maintained through uh, a famine and fire in this this forsaken year and now to have uh, an invasion of an army of marauding predators that that could do away with everything we know even if we survive it yeah Sable like nods you know sympathetically and kind of is trying mentally to, to get to the root of what this guy's saying right which is that he's scared of losing what he has and being mm-hmm. comfortable and maybe there's a way that she can kind of spin that to t- try to get him to I, I think she wants him to think that it's his idea to be empathetic right because that's kind of <laughs> how it is is like you got to make him think that like oh yeah like I, I am a good person and I do want to protect my community like that sort of thing um so she's trying to figure out how to like spin that for him I think she opens up to this guy about um her past okay oh goodness because um and, and she's she's honest and she says um when i was younger and i had i had been married and i had a child and the, the, the weasels had attacked 
close to us, and all of the guards mice were away fighting, and there was a fire uh, at my house, and my I lost my family because we just didn't have enough hands to put it out. No one was there to help protect us at home. I think not enough people think about that in, in times like this, and she, you know, she gestures at the the training yard where I'm assuming it's it's pretty full and lively in Lockhaven. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, just a lot of hustle and bustle going on, and, and she says, like, we have soldiers. We have people to go out on the front lines. What we need is more people to help back home and help the people that are being left behind. I think that's somewhere where you could really do a lot of good. You know, if you, if you help fortify walls or the like grow food or you know even just being there to put out fires I mean if if a second fire strikes Gil Pledge this year we are truly cursed <laughs> oh that is true enough uh, he he smiles tries to, to lift uh, that that long spear again in only one paw and it's is it's more effort than you're gonna want to have to expend if, if you're using a spear after yeah. all. And and it clatters to the ground and uh, uh, says, perhaps I have an idea. Oh? I have the keys to a bank vault, a nearly impenetrable uh, uh, fortress in itself. Let me think how many mice it could protect in ev- in the event of the worst. That's a fantastic idea. Let me see how many, how much food I can find to fill it, and how much time that would buy for the experts in such things. He says, l- looking out on your class of, you know, you've got some hunters from from Wolf Point and, and Glass Lake, some much more capable uh, mice than he, stopping off at Lockhaven on their way toward, you know, defending Pebblebrook and Barkstone, and and yes, Dorgrift and Guild Pledge. Maybe my contribution does lie in other places. Sable nods, you know, encouragingly, and says that, you know, there's not, there, there's no less glory or, or impact in something like this. I think that, if anything, it's, it feels better at the end of the day to know that you helped feed someone and, or, you know, stopped someone from going hungry than it does to run someone through with your sword. Without any more words than politeness demands, Edward stands up, makes his quick goodbyes, and heads out with a group of mice to the south. As Sable busies herself with some secret favors Zully asked of her, she feels a small moment of pride at passing along the lesson that came hardest to her. It's never too late to get on the right path. Henson stood on a lashed rampart, scanning the horizon. His wounds were from something far larger and deadlier than any weasel, and he lived with those wounds every day. Pebblebrook stood through the war, divided as it was, eaten up by secrets as it may be. Henson stood there all the same and never took a single step back, and after he fell, those at his side took his place. The Bat King failed to answer Dark Heather's call once after the snow fell. Savash took that as betrayal enough. The king was captured in a net, put in a tunnel where he could not stretch his wings, and asked to account for himself. The king's court turned to Lockhaven for aid. 
Gwendolyn looked down at her maps and saw sieges to be broken, strikes to defend against, and supply lines to protect. She did not see any mice to spare. There is no longer a king of the bats. Those bats who are ruled at all are ruled by their grudges. The war was Tomas's chance. Surely things were different now. A mouse of his expertise, his knowledge of the enemy would be very useful indeed. Exile could be undone if the conditions were right. And oh, did those conditions present themselves. He set a watch post and saw siege weapons put on a sled to be pulled over the frozen stream toward Ferndale or, or even beyond. A warning would buy Tomas's way back to civilization. It must. He took a route near the Weasel Force, ahead on their path. He had to arrive first, but couldn't lose a bead on them. Emerging from the brush before he could form a word, Tomas was shot dead. Reports differ over which side fired, as both thought him an enemy at first glance. Kevin hadn't been a judge, not properly, for a number of years, but he still had his judgment. A young weasel, gravely ill, asked for asylum in Copperwood. Too many mice were confident in their snap judgments. Kevin wanted to see for himself. He went out to meet it, asked it some questions, gave it some Ferndale herb. He learned about the capricious orders from Savage, the shortages brought by lords bickering and keeping secrets. He learned about younger weasels whose parent here desperately didn't want to become orphans. Copperwood gained a citizen that day, and nobody had any standing to deny it. There's more for a blacksmith to do on the front than in their shop, and less to do it with. Tenny liked the challenge. He liked his own bed better, and his great-grandmother's anvil he'd left behind, but the challenge was still appreciated. The safety of the settlements needed weapons. Armor and tools made with less time and less heat than he was used to. Sutin gave every drop of strength his arm ever had. They say every spearhead that drove back the midnight charge of Tunnelstone came from his hammer. Shippon always saw the bright side. Always had a way to turn a setback into an asset. Expulsion from the guard was no different. Now he was a freelance. A mouse of skill and connection. Free from red tape. Perhaps he would become a deniable apps asset. Some sort of double agent. Perhaps the remains of the spear would see this as a sign of his loyalty, and he could steer the scattered shards to better, more fruitful ends. The world was Chapon's oyster. Until... Until the day he learned of Rosard's death. Every plan, every dream he had, would involve reconciling with Rosard and fighting side by side with him once again. When the battles came, when the war began, he pledged his rapier to the service of Rizard's memory. The two were joined in death at the fall of Ferndale. Battles have been waged across the territories, each one a loss for someone who could not afford it. Beatrice, Lord of Tunnelstone, had assembled her forces for one glorious charge on Lockhaven. Now, we find Gwendolyn in her matriarch's chambers speaking with the judge of the guard. Granny, how did you ensure your defenders repelled this attack? Well, Lockhaven has been the Mouse Guard's preferred fortress for generations. 
There are two things that make it more defensible than any other place in the territories. One, it's one of the only places made of stone instead of wood. But the true defense of Lockhaven is that it sits on t underneath a massive beehive. <laughs> Very true. Very true. <laughs> and Granny knows exactly how to get bees to swarm. So I think while there is a traditional defense keeping the weasels at the gates, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. once they've reached a certain critical mass, it's mostly a matter of unleashing the bees and letting them do their thing for a while and then cleaning up the mess. So Gwendolyn is at her desk. She's, she's looking over, you know, paperwork. Uh, uh, she, she's looking over reports that have been assembled of what, mm -hmm. what supplies were, were consumed and what remains and the needs of uh, uh, both defenders against sieges and, and uh, uh, refugee populations. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, all, all of this is, she's got a hell of an inbox. <laughs> Yeah. But yes, the, the meeting for today is specifically uh, a sort of debrief, a, a review of, of how, of what exactly happened in repelling the, the great charge of Tunnel Stone. Yeah. This is supposed to be towards the end of the war. Bees are very asleep during winter. <laughs> it's, it's true. We had to hold out until the first thaws and they started moving again. So it's sort of an, an accident, uh, not an accident, but a, a lucky break that, yeah. that you are able to, to save Lockhaven with uh, uh, as little harm as possible. Mm -hmm. We were under siege for a little bit, but we knew that spring was coming, the bees would wake up and we could use our emergency swarm button. We just had to hold out and play very defensively mm -hmm. against mm -hmm. very powerful foes. Thank, thank you so much, Ivy. Uh, it's been, it's been an unspeakable help to trust you in in protecting this keep, so that I can focus so many of our, our resources elsewhere. Mm hmm. Of course, dearie. I defended this keep once before, long ago. I know how it goes. Patrol guard Bronwyn has done an excellent job of defending the gates and managing our mice. Honestly, I feel I've almost had little to do. <laughs> that laugh is extremely sarcastic. Um, <laughs> Gwendolyn is well aware that Granny Absolutely. has been running across oh, yes. Lockhaven up and down like two months now. So as uh, uh, Gwendolyn is still looking at this, it almost looks like it's sort of like a, a dark comic way like a, a balance sheet just like <laughs> and on that sheet is you know lives so she, she's looking over the, the valiant mice lost and also some of like and so she raises the question and what what did happen to Beatrice in the end uh, did she make it away again I don't think she did <laughs> like she's too proud too noble to a fault Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She's not going to give up until either Lockhaven falls or she does. And obviously, Lockhaven didn't fall. The only way she would let herself or the weasels, or, or more specifically, her soldiers to retreat would be once we took her out. So, so like, there's a flashback to, to a moment of Beatrice, like, arming herself and saying, Okay, I will do this myself, right? Yeah. 
And in what way do you think she's trying to breach? Like, is, is there something hammering away at the walls or the door? Is this a over, under, and around? What, what is the approach? I think she doesn't know enough about Lockhaven to try under. She isn't sure how far down the stone goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I believe is secretly smart because I'm pretty sure Lockhaven is, like, buried a little bit. Yeah, it goes it goes down a ways. Going through the walls is very difficult, but weasels, they do have the advantage of being four times the size of mice. And we all live in a forest. Brachiation is an option. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think she's going to try and go in from above, because that's the softest part of it. And if the bees are still asleep during winter, you can just breach the hive and go on through. Okay, so there there's an aerial assault, essentially, with Beatrice at the helm. Yeah. After failing to go through the gates. After failing, yeah, to, to pierce the, the iron portcullis. Uh, uh, after failing to, to breach the walls or climb the walls. We're just ignoring the walls entirely. Yeah, they're going to go around the tree and come in from above. As as she leaps down, like Beatrice has not noticed that it's an unusually warm day for the winter. It's, it's one of those every once in a while, out of nowhere, you get like a 50 degree day mm-hmm. in what should be, you know, 20 or so. So, so as she and, and her advance, uh, uh, like retinue are just falling from the branches as, as like a spearhead, they're, they're met with the buzzing of wings. You were Beatrice for a while. What, what weapon would she be, be bringing? Um, she a sword, a, a spear. I think she always fought with a spear with like a big cross guard. Oh, heck yeah. Um, because she's like a hunter by nature. Mm-hmm, and you mm-hmm. need that cross guard so that way when you stab the pig, it doesn't keep going through you. Yes. Like that lo- sort of logic. And she fought badgers, which are probably very similar in attitude. <laughs> um. So so this spear clangs off of the shield of, of Rand uh, uh, of the mouse guard. And she is like face to face with a number of defenders, including Genry. And uh, I don't think she survives that battle. While uh, obviously the the stinging of of the bees gives the advantage to the defenders that that finally wins the day. Yeah, I think like a lot of her patrol gets through, and they obviously anger the swarm, and it just kind of everywhere. And Granny has to do her old trick to basically pacify the bees of smoking them. Mm-hmm. So the corridors of Lockhaven just have like an underlying layer of smoke so the bees stay out of it, basically. Well, so once the breezes break through, they're no longer being stung. But now they're walking into a group of armed mice. Right, right. <laughs> the two-pronged pincer gives us the advantage we need to keep them from... Also, the fact that our corridors are probably a lot smaller than they're used to. Mm-hmm. That isn't helping. It's very cramped in Lockhaven for a weasel. And of course, the, the reason that Gwendol needs to be told this is because uh, she was joining the fighting in the hallways. She could not see uh, Beatrice falling on the roof. Mm, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, our scouts uh, definitely saw them going around the tree, which is pro- why they wouldn't have tried it sooner. So we were very prepared for this assault. It's not a subtle one. You can see it coming. Gwendolyn stands up and she goes like and looks out the window for the first time in, in this, this conversation. And she, she breathes and says, It is nice to not see an army camping out in the center of my view. <laughs> Something of a relief. Yes. It almost feels like before the war again. She turns back around. 
it will never feel like before the war again, Ivy. Hmm. Well, war does change things for everyone. Anyhow, this could have been done with a note. What brings you here? Ah, yes. Well, I've decided who will be my replacement once the war is over. Retiring again? (laughs) Oh, I don't think I have much longer to live, my dear. I'm very old. Well, let's hope you get to enjoy this one. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. Uh, Patrol Guard Bronwyn had done an excellent job in holding the siege. And were it not for her extended efforts, we wouldn't have survived to the awakening of the bees in spring to drive our foes out once and for all. So I think she would be a magnificent captain in my stead. That is my nomination. I will take it under advisement. Thank you very much. And, uh, Granny, like, pushes herself up out of the chair. And she is definitely a bit more weary. Mm-hmm than she was maybe half a year ago when she was itching to get back in the field and move around a bit. Her old bones, it's all caught up to her between the battles and now managing Lockhaven for a couple months. And she gets up to join Gwendolyn by the window, and they see that the weasels, what's left of them, have been retreating, like tearing down their camp and going, basically. The official stance of the mouse guard right now is kind of to let them... (laughs) Let them go. Mm-hmm. We're not going to push this further if we can help it. We're, we're weary too. <laughs> After that big battle. Spigot the Wanderer had left Lockhaven back in the summer. He had given the guard an honest shot this time, but structure wasn't his thing. He'd find his own path. It started with fixing broken cartwheels and guiding lost travelers, but graver duties came with the snow. His wandering through the southwest brought him over many hidden tunnels. At each one, he tapped buckets of tree sap, boiled it down, and poured the hot mess down into the tunnel. The tunnels were left unpassable and visible to anyone with eyes. Spicket never got caught by the weasels, and the tunnels he sealed are marked on the land survey of 1150. Gutmwild took his orders. He always had. It's expected of a guard of Dark Heather. His parents had been guards too, perhaps even stationed at his same post, and they had fought in the last war. Gumweld fought in this one, at the behest of his overlord. The front didn't have any bagels or any comforts, really, but it had purpose. It had order. It had the knowledge that you were exactly where your overlord needed you. Apparently, Gumweld's overlord needed him to die suddenly, snowflakes in his eyes. The stream toward Pebblebrook was thawed by chaotic footfalls, but the barrier held. Now mice rush forward with bandages, splints, and too little medicine. Snow is boiled in large pots to disinfect tools and wraps. One mouse with a nervous eye and bright red fur goes to work. What name do you give when asked? Oh, it's a good name for Resolve. What's a good fake name for Resolve? Um, I guess, um... Is all this derived from the words ice and battle, and I guess the second word for bite. Damn! <laughs> <laughs> yeah? It's pretty good. And the second part is, like, you know, derived from the same as Hilda, like Hilja, which is the same, like, old Germanic root. So I guess I'll go with Hilda for his old fake name. 
So Hilda is uh, uh, looking over the battlefield here to give aid, and you hear a mouse calling for help. Uh, it is a young woman, the, the sort that you would never peg to be a soldier, but these, these times change mice. Um, well, uh, quote-unquote Hilda uh, will, I guess, run over to wherever the service mouse is. Uh, what, what's happened here? Like, how bad is the scene generally? Like, what's the scope of the devastation? The ice and snow have turned to to mud and and grime, but the siege of Pebblebrook has broken at least for now, uh, giving you cover to to collect wounded. The specific problem you see immediately is that you can save this mouse's life. You cannot save both of her legs. One of oh. them uh, has been lost. No, we don't have to. We don't have to get into gruesome gruesome details here. That's maybe not necessary. I don't need to do hardcore medical roleplay. Um, mm-hmm. is, uh, is she conscious? Yes, yes. Uh, okay. Uh, well, the first thing to do is to calm down the patient. I stride over there trying to look as, like, as much as, like, I've got my shit together as possible because confidence is everything when dealing with someone who is in this state of distress. I say, you know, I guess I still wouldn't really try to be too friendly. she just get right into it. Okay, mm-hmm. so is she screaming? She's, uh, uh, been crying for help. I don't think she she's outwardly screaming, no. Alright, she says, calm down. I'm here to help. I'm here to help you. Please try to please try to be still. Like how easy how easy would it be to move her? Like is she like in a state where I'll need to do anything for, like right now here on the scene, or can I just get her onto like a something to wheel like you know? You could you can manage. Uh, I'm imagining this as like of a disastrous fracture that you couldn't set, not like it got lapped off by a sword and okay. it's openly so gushing. it looks it looks bad, but it is not like in immediate life threatening like the like right right state. Alright, presumably I have some kind of stretcher with me. So while trying to trying to calm the patient down, I'll just like, you know, just mushroom mushrooming, soothing wounds, wounds, just trying to say, it'll be alright, we're getting you back to camp, you look, uh, you know, you, you look, everything's gonna be fine. <laughs> Which is uh, probably not true. Uh, and then I will, I'll, let, I'll like care- carefully lift her onto the stretcher, and uh, try, I guess it's hard to transfer someone on a stretcher alone, and she probably has like a little wheelbarrow thing or something, like in a battle, yeah, like, a yeah. battlefield. Um, and then I will load. I will load her up, and I will say, "We're going to get you. Go. We're gonna get, I'm going to get you somewhere where I can give you proper help. Uh, please try to stay calm and still. I'm going to start to wheel her towards okay. the camp." Okay. Uh, so let, let's skip a little while ahead. You you have uh, a rendered all medically necessary assistance, and your and your charge here is is coming around, is waking up and is immediately looking for uh, uh, like her her axe you know her her supplies she's trying to make uh, for the door oh have i amputated the leg yeah uh, she does not um, get far as she I, realizes I, say, I you know say please try to calm down you've been heavily injured uh you need better you need to stay in bed uh Presumably it's like quite a, you know, a crowded room, so I'm probably trying to speak up a bit to make sure she can hear it, because, you know, medical tents, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these big ones for, like, armies aren't usually... How, how long? How long? Uh, how, how long until I can go back out? Uh, Isolde looks her up and down, like, she, she's trying to, trying to figure out a way to break something difficult. She's, uh, she says, ma'am, I don't mean to be too blunt, uh, but you, you have lost a leg. I think this is probably the end of your service in your war, uh, in the war. You fought valiantly, but I think the but I don't think there's any harm in, in t- taking some time to rest. A week, two weeks. I I know what I've lost. I'm not stupid. 
but how long? It all looks like, you know, she has kind of a, a pained expression. She's trying to... Well, um, for the time being, it's difficult to say, uh, for how her condition will settle out. You know, recovery, uh, levels of pain tolerance, these sort of things vary wildly from person to person. Um, you'll need to be, like, in order to do anything, I'm afraid you'll need to be fitted from a prosthetic, which uh, we can't do here, you'll have to uh, return somewhere, somewhere, inner, uh, somewhere preferring to the territories. This all tries to be, like, is trying to think of what she, trying to balance what she wants to hear with something vaguely realistic, which she's not very good at. Uh, she says, I don't know, um, three months, uh, six months. I'm not from here. I'm from, <laughs> I'm from Dorgift. I came north because if I didn't fight, then I was afraid my nephew would. He's 14. And you're talking to me about paperwork and, and requisitions? It's not a question of paperwork. Uh, people, you need the limb needs to be... It needs to be, fit, like, you know, crafted physically from scratch. I mean, someone could get you just a wooden leg and you could theoretically walk, uh, but not in any state to do battle. What uh, else is worth doing right now? I, you'd send me back home to make more donuts? How How is that going to... I will turn my axe into a crutch and mark west if that's what it takes and put a sword in every mouse's paw I see on the way. Why shouldn't I? She'll look and make a conflict in expression and say, I understand how you're feeling right now, but you're only one person. There's, there's only so much you can do here. You need to think about what's best for you at the moment. Just look, at, look, look down, look at your wound. Mm-hmm. I want you to imagine that you're seeing someone, someone in a state like this, saying what you're saying right now. Would you think that person was being rational? I'm not sure we live in rational times, ma'am. Not anymore. Maybe not. What would you What would you do if I let you go? If I strapped whatever I could find onto your leg and sent you out the out the door of the tent, out to the west, barely any distance from the scent barrier here. I'd find any unit willing to take me. You're right, I'm, I'm only one mouse now, but when, when I'm beside my, my brothers and sisters in arms, well, then we're a unit, and something that I've found out here is uh, the ability to, to do more in groups, as we're, we're small, and we're not particularly fierce, but... I have the chance to set things right, and that is exactly what I ought to do. That's the creed of the Mouse Guard. Some of it. Uh, Isolde will sort of, you know, she looks like conflicted for a second, um, and she says, I understand how you feel. When this war broke out, you probably felt powerless, right? And Absolutely. You found a sense of purpose with people who fight, along your, who fight alongside you? You thought you could change the world? And with any luck, I won't find them in this tent. What happened to what happened to your comrades when you were talk ones you were talking about? Were they in the battle too? Yes. We we were shoring up uh, uh, the left flank when uh, uh, some of the palisades came down, and then I lost sight of them. I got I got trampled by a cart, and you can see the result of that. I don't know. I, I, she, she gives you a name. Like I, 
if you could go uh, uh, next time you're in town, if you could ask for them, I'm sure that that they're curious where I wound up. Uh, is all like probably saw some of the state of the battlefield, right? Like she. Mm-hmm, uh, does she have any idea of what, like, this vague group that she's talking about, what might have happened to them? Like, whoever they turned out, things turned out well for them. You you would know that the Smokedon Inn is probably the place to ask. It's become sort of a, a like, uh, place of coordination. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's all a thing for a second. She says, do you have any family back home? Yeah, I, I have family. Um, I'm not sure where they all are this season, but I have family. Do you have people who who love you, who'd care about you if you went missing out here? Like if you marched off to the west before we were about your like about your comrades? Or whoever anyone you could just hand a sharp stick to? Yes. I I am fortunate, yes. The people who are counting on you aren't just the pe- aren't the people just the people you fight in battle with. But all the people you know. All for your life. All the people you've ever known. So I won't tell you what you should or you shouldn't do, but you should keep that in mind, at least. I'll go to the inn to ask after your comrades. Please stay here until then. I'll be here. Isold nods. Uh, Isold has a full day ahead of her, uh, uh, nursing for those wounded here in Pebblebrook, but she does take time to head to the Smokedon Inn after Jasper, the head of Penelope's company. Uh, and you find him, and he is well, and he is heartened to know that uh, uh, Penelope survived after she was separated from them. It's always going to impart on him, with as much, like, you know, as much intensity as she can muster, she tells uh, mm-hmm. him tells him above the state of Penelope, uh, like the fact that she is physically in absolutely no condition to fight, and says uh, where she is, and that it is his responsibility to make sure she does not wander off into the wilderness to get herself killed. (laughs) He uh, uh, absolutely takes that advice and thanks you, and says that he owes you a favor. uh, There's no need for a favor. I'm just doing my duty. He he nods and, and lets you leave it at that. Is old as that business is concluded, and you head out of the Smokedon Inn turned uh, uh, siege defense headquarters. Uh, we use what we've got in these towns. A familiar, uh, uh, a familiar mouse catches your eye. Uh, is old. Who is this? Uh, well, as is old is leaving the Smokedon Inn, uh, she spots a a mouse with a, like she spots uh, waiting around the inn. A massive kind of a bright yellow coat of fur, uh, and a uh, what color did you say for the cape? I've already forgotten it. A uh, turquoise. Oh, a turquoise cape. <laughs> and their eyes meet. Sable, like, you know, her her eyes crinkle as she smiles and waves a hand over, uh, so that the two of them can get going out of town, where you know Isolde's less likely to be to run into trouble. It's all the like, for a moment she looks at her with a complicated expression, like she, like there's a few things going through her head, and then she'll she'll, she'll try to smile and give like a small wave in return. Uh, before anything else, uh, she'll just, uh, she'll, I imagine like lately, like whenever result has been like meeting, meetings like Sable recently, she'll be like, I'm really sorry for making you go out of your way like this. Like... I think every single time Sable is like, oh my god, the stuff falls, <laughs> I was like... <laughs> <laughs> I really don't mean to put you to inconvenience. Like she's supposed to say it in a really severe way, like that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it if it, if it was terribly inconvenient. I, I promise. I appreciate it, regardless. 
I mean, I'm a, I'm a medic too anyway. It's, you know, I, I go where I'm needed, so don't worry about it. Salt says, we should get a little bit uh, away from here, if you don't mind. Um, somewhere of less course. crowded. Yeah, uh, of course. Is there, like, a, an area sort of like... I guess, like, does Pebbleburg, does Pebbleburg have, like... I don't know what you'd say this, like the mouse equivalent of a suburb, where there are like a few houses like spread intermittently that aren't like in the settlement itself, or does that not exist in Mouse Guard? I imagine the the like uh, the quarry workers barracks could uh, serve that sort of a purpose. Yeah, we'll head somewhere. The, the like boarding house for uh, uh, quarry workers. All the way, as will make small talk. Uh, you know, you know, I never learned how you got medical training. Um, I think she says that it was just something that they taught her in the guard, but it was something that she took to more naturally than fighting, and became clear that this is the thing that she was good at, and not swinging a sword around. That makes sense. They let me skip most of that sort of training because I'd already uh, gone to school in Spruce Tuck, but I probably should have learned uh, more about battlefield, like surgery specifically. I'm a bit over my out of my out of, bit out of my league here, to be honest. And, uh, they they don't they don't go much into battlefield surgery in, in the guard training either, because we've never really had cause to use it at such a large scale um, until now, but we're all learning and trying our best, and if you if you ever need, I can, you know, I can teach you what I know. It's very kind of you. There's a kind of awkwardness that pervades everything as Alt says. Like, she seems there's, there's kind of a... like Even the, even after you've been beating her like this for a while, she's still, like, kind of stiff. Like, she's never opened up in the way she did that one time, like, right at the end of everything oh. again. She's always seemed like she's kind of holding things back, not quite knowing what to yeah. say. Um, do you mind if I look, if I take a look around this around town for something, just briefly? Oh, of course. It's always going to be looking for like, like medieval like news sheets. Like this is like a concept in Mouse Guard, right? Like you know, newsletters, yeah, like yeah. stuff like that. Um, it's always going to be looking for anywhere like, where she can get one of those, like just a sort of basic like a small written thing with like some like local like news or whatever. I mean. <laughs> There's probably, like, broadsheets posted outside of the print shop. Oh, oh, the print shop would be- the print shop is a no-no, uh, cause you remember his old backstory? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, uh. No, this is the- the- she- she's doing this because of the print shop, but she can't go to the print shop. Uh, so she needs to just, like, pinch someone from- one from someone else or something. Or, you know. Yeah, This yeah. one that's lying around <laughs> in a public space. That's why she went out here. I'm sure that there is a notice board, yeah, f- uh, near here, yeah. uh, for the quarry workers as well, yeah. Uh, while Sable is still confused as to what Isolde is doing, as, you know, Isolde will ask her, so, what's been going on at the guard? Have there been any changes? I, uh, just off the top of my head, I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, Sable will fill her in on, like, here's what's going on with, like, um, people who are, like, asking after you. Like, I think Sable always kind of is like, you know, hey, here's what you need to watch out for, uh, yeah. be careful of, and then... And then we'll kind of try to distract her from that by talking about other stuff. Yeah. Um, like she kind of gets yeah. the gets the downer shit out of the way first, and then is like, <laughs> and also. Um, I feel like Isol probably would have like I've I've kind of phrased that question to because Isol really should have like asked like for information on the guard in a way where it seemed like she was asking just for like am I am I gonna be okay are people looking for me but she's really also kind of just wants to know how people are like how things are going like, yeah she no like, I get it. Yeah, and, and she does, like, Sable does, um, I think she talks about, like, both the the general state of Lockhaven, but also just kind of, like, tells us a lot of stories about, like, how her life is going, and tries to, to, like, make her feel like, 
I don't like Isolde is super awkward, but like Sable tries to make her feel like she's just like having a conversation with like an old friend, yeah. um, and and knows that like sometimes Isolde prefers to just like listen, so she's happy yeah. to just like let her do that and kind of like tries to establish a feeling of like some sort of normalcy in yeah. Isolde's life. Isolde won't say much, but like she'll, you know, she'll seem, seems like seem kind of contented and just not occasionally. Uh, she'll probably ask about like Lily and everyone else. Like, uh, uh, how does Isolde react to the news that Zeke is engaged? Oh, um, Isolde, like, well, I mean, it was pretty obvious it was going to happen, right? Because Isolde, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, they, I guess you'd probably be like, oh, I thought they were already. I'm, I'm just, I'm just so happy for them. I mean, you know. Clearly, they're a good match if we already thought that yeah. <laughs> it was I happening. I guess some people are just very cautious, you know. It's a good trait. <laughs> it is. It's very romantic. And yeah, I, I, she'll, she'll fill her in about what Lily is trying to do with them and say that, mm-hmm. like, you know, Isolde would probably be welcomed there. Isolde probably makes like, a, makes like a conflicted expression where it looks like there are two halves of her brain are like kind of at war with each other. Like, she kind of scrunches up her brow and like kind of... <laughs> she says, that sounds very much like her. I hope it's a success. Me too. I-, I want it to work out for her and for everyone else, but mostly really for her. So I, you know, I'm trying to help as best as I can. It would be nice if there, you know, someone could make a little piece in this world, I suppose. That's a kind of miracle of itself. Isolde is leading the two of them towards a notice board uh, in the middle of this kind of like area of town. Oh, there's a few things. Um... Or is this some, like, newsletters and, like, other sort of, like, probably some, like, you know, job offers, like, stable, like, you know, pinned to the wall. Mm-hmm. And when they get there, Isolde, um, Isolde will kind of glance left and right in, like, kind of a shady way to see if anyone's looking. Isolde, without really, without really, like, uh, explaining herself, well, she'll probably look kind of, kind of, kind of, like, you know, reticent about it. She'll, like, take down one of the newsletters and just, like, take and, like, just kind of, uh, put it into her bag. Now that they're, they're here and she's got this, Isolde will say, uh, I'm sure you're probably very busy, so, you know, uh, if you want to get back to whatever you've been doing, or your work, then that's fine. I don't want to take up too much of your time. No, I'm not busy. Uh, are you sure? It's a bit of a walk. We might not be back until after it's dark. That's okay. I'd like to- I'd like to come along. Uh, after looking, like, kind of hesitant for a little for a minute, Isolde will head out of the town and, like, head out into- a bit into the- a bit into the woods, uh, beyond the outskirts of Pebblebrook and uh, lead onto an old dirt path that seems like it's barely been used for like a very long time. Once they get a bit out of town, like her pace will slow from like her, because as all I imagine usually has kind of a, a kind of like, she moves quite quickly, and she kind of skimpers about. Mm-hmm. Um, but as she uh, gets into this area, she'll like slow, sort of slow down in a way that she usually doesn't. Like she kind of relaxes a bit. Uh, she'll say, this sounds a bit silly to admit, but I've never been in, out, out here of anyone else. It's not a real grave, you know. Because they, well... Sable, yeah. Sable nods. She, uh, infers. It's just something I made myself. The only person I ever asked to was Bago, but he didn't seem interested. He wasn't really close with her, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It was complicated. I think some people don't know how to react when they see someone being vulnerable, or or in a, in a state that's vulnerable or sad, and they'd rather avoid it entirely, which may be why he might not have come with you. Suppose that's true. Some people feel uncomfortable when they see other people being sad instead of, you know, feeling sympathy or really anything else. 
At first, me and Bego, we were almost the same, you know? We'd cry and we'd get upset and we'd shout about it. It seemed like we were always on the same pa like, page about everything. We both were angry at the same people. Probably, you know, people talk about everyone grieving in their own separate way. Most people, I feel like, are often pretty similar. Everyone is sort of predictable. There's no one alive who hasn't lost someone. Hmm. It's just, it's just, it's one of the few inevitable things that every creature on this earth will share. It was only after some time passed that he started to change. It felt like his mind got stuck, you know? Like, he, he still acted different ways, you know, he would act sad, he would act happy, but I could tell always that on the inside he was always angry, you know? Mm -hmm. We used to talk about things when we were young, about life, about, you know, our friends, our dreams, whatever. After that, he just didn't want to do any of it anymore. All he ever wanted to talk about was the mission. He didn't even talk about our families. After a while, like something eaten from him from the inside out. It was just something else left wearing his skin. It's easier to be angry than it is to be sad for, for some people. I think people feel like anger moves them forward, mm. even if even if he was still really stuck. I think sometimes people can think that anger is a more comfortable feeling to feel than just holding your sadness. Anger makes you feel powerful, like you can do mm -hmm. something. Exactly. I was angry for a bit, but I don't know. It all looks like she's on the verge of saying something, but then like stops herself for a moment, kind of like biting her lip. Then as, uh, as the moment passes, they like finally arrive at the scene. It is an unremarkable sort of like little op like uh, like opening like sort of an, like I guess on a mouse scale or it's probably like a you know like against like a little area between some roots and the side of a tree uh, tucked away behind like some bushes where it's unlikely someone will see. There, uh, a small stone has been half dug into the rock, like smoothed out a bit. At the foot of the stone, at the foot of the stone is a smaller stone, and underneath it is what looks like a pile of rotting paper, uh, rotting like parchment, just like stacked up. But like it's almost unrecognizable. Like it could be like just it could have just been like some fallen leaves. It's only when you look close and you see sort of like the outlines of like spray like scribbles and uh, like on the page that you realize it's paper. And on the stone itself is uh, uh, carved a carved a single name, uh, which is Lynette. Uh, there's nothing else on it. There's no epitaph. As they approach, is all sort of like uh, is all like looks. At Sable, like, she's not quite sure if this is appropriate, or like if, if, like it's not like a hostile look, but like it's a look of wariness, like she, she feels like she's, is doing something, you know, like wrong or something, like offensive, not to, to either to Sable or to some like unseen, like, is it like unseen presence. Uh, but then she's like slowly kind of says, uh, she kind of gestures towards the area and, uh, steps forward, uh, and she takes out the, uh, the newsletter out of her bag. Uh, but then as she as she approaches, she seems to like kind of kind of get lost. Like she's like she seems to get kind of stuck for a second. She just kind of kind of just stares at it and at the gravestone. Yeah. So I think uh, Sable would have brought something. Uh, so she she takes some flowers out of her bag and um, probably like just like some wildflowers that like she gathered herself. But you know they look nice and approaches and and lays them on on the the grave marker or like you know at the foot of it and says uh hi lynette um i didn't i don't know what kind of flowers you like so i just got a little of everything kind of steps back 
as soon as this breaks us all out of her out of her reverie a little bit, she'll say, uh, to be honest, I don't know if she really liked flowers. <laughs> I think Sable like laughs a little bit at that. <laughs> she kind of she was kind of, she kinda of didn't really like plants in general. I always thought oh, it was well. weird that I kept so many around. But I'm sure well. she'd appreciate it anyway. <laughs> she she wanted to be a journalist. As she as Old explains, as she holds up the newsletters. We used to work oh. at a at the printer's office together with some other other kids. Mostly we would just do, you know, like writing the writing them out. Occasionally they would let us, uh, you know, write a little article or two. Or just, you know, do a little bit of editing. That's really sweet. She loved to read the read the news too, or she was just always enthusiastic about little things like the way it was written or, you know, uh the style of the of the script and just the thing thing I don't know. I'm I'm not I'm not really into this sort of thing myself. She always did, so I tried to leave something here. That's really sweet. I know she doesn't see it, it just feels like the sort of thing you ought to do. I don't mean to be strange. It's not strange. When I when my husband and child passed, I I still go once a year. Even though it's been so long and I'm, I'm busy with guard things now, but I you know, I still make the time to go and I know that they don't see the the things that I leave them. Yeah. I, I I tried to even bring some of my my husband's favorite food, but um, you know, leaving that out on a uh, in the open was not the smartest idea. But I wasn't really thinking rationally at the time. Um, I suppose you could bury it, you know, only shallow though. <laughs> otherwise, you know, it would, it would cause yes. problems. <laughs> Sable like laughs. laughs. And um, did Sable accidentally bring a fox into a? a- uh, not not that bad. Maybe. Okay. Okay. Maybe you know. A mouse-sized meal would probably only be like a lick or two for a fox. Like it wouldn't be that's, very much. That's that's the thing. What I'm what I'm realizing. I'm like, oh god, they're so they're so small. I just keep remembering how small a mouse is. Um, very small. The the point is that that uh, uh, yeah, Sable just talks about her her husband and kid and how like yeah. you know, she's. Little doesn't say very much, but she seems to appreciate it. She says, you know, people always say that sort of thing is more for you than the other person, I suppose, but I've always thought it's uh, a little more complicated than that, I suppose. It doesn't feel like something that I'm doing quite for myself. It feels more like something I'm doing because I have to do it, you know? Like it's for the world. I'm sorry. I don't know how to put it into words. Things like this are complicated, to say the least. It can be difficult. To know why you do things sometimes, you know? She steps over to the gravestone and she she like awkwardly tries to hold down the paper, like the muddy like sort of like half-dissolved papers that are already in place and are very eager to like blow away instantly as she like shoves another one underneath there. No, uh, you can use the flower bouquet as a paperweight if nothing else. <laughs> I guess that's true. Uh, Isolde will step back on us and say, I just sit out here for a little bit after I'm done. I just think about things. Sable takes a seat. She's like, "Well, I'm I'm not gonna, I'm not one to disrupt your your tradition here." So, it's nice of you to have come. You know, that's what friends are for. It's painful having to let people see an ugly side of you. I don't know. It's hard to be vulnerable, like I said, but I think that it speaks a lot to you that you're to to you and how you've grown that you're letting anyone see this. 
I know that it, it sounds weird to say, and maybe it, it's a little bit condescending, but I'm, I am proud of you. Thank you, Azalt says, sounding for the first time a little bit, like, genuinely touched, like she can't quite Aww. keep it out of her voice. I never told you, but, but I'm sorry for getting you involved in all of this. We were here last, I mean. I'm not, I'm not proud of the things that I did and the things that we did, but I am proud of us for learning and for trying to do better. And it taught me a lot about myself and the things that I'm willing to, I don't know, I, I don't want to make excuses for either of us, but at least I can take away that I learned and that I know better what kind of person I am now. Well, I probably shouldn't say I'm glad, but <laughs> the one thing we're always learning about is ourselves, I suppose. I set out at the beginning of all this to try to learn how to fix how to fix all sort of problems, but all I really learned about was myself. Back then, when it all happened, the thing I've always thought about, like about this whole time, is how different the world felt when we were, we were living together, all my with Bago, and Lynette, and I, just spending our days together. It all felt so simple, so pure, so good. Good as in kind, graceful, like a machine that clicked together in the right way, you know? Mm -hmm. Every day, I woke up and I knew I could trust everyone. My family, my friends, that we were all part of something. I guess that's, that's, what, it, that's what attracted me to the guard, to the spear, I suppose, was the idea. But back then it was different. I felt, it really did feel like we were all, all working together working towards some kind of dream or some or some kind of happy ending. I'm sorry, I... It's okay. You don't have to be sorry. I think the reason I come here, you know, it's not because I really want to mourn her exactly. I feel like I've never been the kind of person to... I think I come here because I want to apologize, you know? I did all those things, and even when I was doing them, I knew it wasn't something she was uh, she was she would want. It wasn't something I was doing for her. It wasn't even a revenge. Like as I told you a minute ago, that at first I was angry, but what I felt was almost more like hope. I suppose I felt as though even though I didn't, I knew it didn't make sense. That somehow, if I could win, if I could just get justice, if I could make things work the way they were supposed to, that I wanted them to, back then that the world would just snap back into its proper shape. That somehow it would all be fixed. That I'd be right there back then, on that day when it all happened. With her, like it was all just some nightmare. And everything would feel right, and it would be right, and that would be the real world. A world where everything is kind and just, and nothing ever feels empty, or confusing, or lost. I couldn't let go of that hope. It's a hard thing to try to let go of, and it's hard to accept that you can't ever go back to the way things were. It's awful when you, you, you know that you would do anything, but you just can't. I don't know if you can ever really be free of something like that. Does it, has it ever gotten easier for you? It has. It's... it doesn't go away, but it does get easier, I promise. When you start looking forward, it becomes easier. You're finally able to start moving forward now. 
this is when things will start to get easier. I promise. I hope you're right. Either way, and it's kind of you to say so. I think after all of it happened, after everything happened, I'd sort of accepted that I'd never really know another person. The life I was living was just sort of like a, you know, a toy winding out. I'm glad I got to know you and everyone. I'm glad I got to see a different kind of, well, maybe hope isn't even the right word, a different kind of future for myself, I suppose. Thank you. I'm glad I got to know you too. Isolve will hug Sable really awkwardly. Oh. Um, Sable gives good hugs, so it's fine. It starts awkward, but Sable makes it a, a, a really good hug, I promise. Isolve sighs. I come here every. I try to come here every few months whenever I'm in the area. If you ever want to come, come again, even if it seems silly, or if any of the others, if you ever hear from them, maybe they'd like to. I'm sure they would. And I'll bring something better than flowers next time. As all, as all smiles. As snow begins to, to fall outside, the conversation continues, moving on to, to lighter things, and perhaps even the future between these two good friends. As a small blanket of, of powder covers the chaotic mess where Isolde began her day. Boris was cold and sharp. His mind was miles from the tree root he hid under, still in Lockhaven, still in his apprenticeship, still in Dark Heather. There, the hunting party he had been sent to find crunched through the snow to his left. His mentor told him to count, assess, and report back. All his teachers ever taught was caution. Boris only needed caution enough to let the weasels pass within his sword's reach. One had the face of the guard that killed Brand. They all had that face. One now bled from that face. Most of the hunting party made it to their destination, and Boris was never seen again. Isariel had been moving messages for weeks. It kept her useful, and it kept the sword out of her paws. Travel also kept her from Fulbert in his foolishness. If he loses a battle, he dies. But he won't accept that if he wins, he dies all the same. Did loyalty protect Lena? Perhaps he should ask George. Today's message was yet more troop movements. Reinald had finally rooted Olga and her Flint Rust militia from their position, and they were retreating east to Gil Pledge. But Beatrice is heading to Gil Pledge. Isaiah knows if this message goes through, she'll ambush them. At least half of those mice are injured. Fulbert wouldn't consider this a worthy battle, but Beatrice might. That message never went through, but it did make for fine Firestarter as Isaiah laid camp. Savage has traveled from battle to battle and camp to camp, the way they do everything this past year, erratically. Fulbert is the Overlord's current host, staging an attack on Copperwood. The scout sent to judge the mine as a point of entry reported to Savash first as the highest rank, but did something to offend them, and now the intelligence is lost. Savash announced their arrival some days ago with a charge directly against the fortified gate, which bounced off harmlessly. Mouse eyes had surely followed those attackers back and counted Fulbert's numbers. It is hopeless, but he feels himself tied. 
to disobey orders, to break tradition, would be to lose something greater than the battle. Uh, what, what is Savash doing while Fulbert uh, uh, is lost in these thoughts? I think Savash at this point is pretty much always hunched over a battle plan or a map, if not actively fighting. And the time when they're not doing one of the two is pretty much just spent unconscious. And even that is becoming less and less frequent as they become more and more battle-crazed. Obsessed with the glory of the war for the sake of the war itself, and not for any particular goal or for any particular victory. Just a shell. So when we last saw Savash, they, they had switched from being their uh, indulgent, uh, hedonist self to being very focused on the task at hand, and now we've gone several steps beyond that, obsessed with uh, battle for battle's sake, I, I guess. The fragile glass bottle holding them up finally shattered. So what does this look like ex- exactly? Like, I, I want to I see a, a picture, a, a frame, you know? I think Savash is so intent on the map that he's barely even, or they're barely even paying attention to whoever else is in the room, including Fulbert, just kind of murmuring orders, formulating plans, taking notes of themselves, very similar to what happened at uh, the banquet. Was the banquet the last time Fulbert saw Savash, or shortly thereafter anyway? I would say the, the last time they had significant time with one another, okay, for, so for certain. Perhaps the last time, period, un- until uh, uh, Savash came to-, to the front at Copperwood. It's very possible that at this point Savash is even like looking malnourished, which is extremely ironic considering their whole battle cry of consuming mice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Guess they haven't gotten any. <laughs> Awkward. So uh, you're, you're being counseled, like normally this would be Fulbert just ordering his own troops, but uh, uh, with the overlord around, like, that that is where the authority has gone, right? So, yeah, so supposedly Savash is just there making quote-unquote suggestions, but also every shitty little murmured suggestion that he makes, or they make, uh, immediately sends attendants scurrying out with orders to take it into action, without really always fully considering the consequences, as was seen with the charge the other day. While, while Fulbert is, like, laying out, like, actual plans and, and with expectations of, of losses and, you know, pro-con Exactly, cons. exactly. Thinking through what the consequences would be and what possible, what plans B and C, in essence. Savash seems to have forgotten all about plans B and C, in general. Fulbert is, like, drawing up a plan that involves, like, plans that, that involve, like, trying to starve the city or, or ruin the groundwater so, so that the mice have to, like, abandon their, their fortified settlement and, and other, like, non-direct ways of attack because the direct path is, again, through, like, this place is locked up tight. We, we will remember how much trouble a, a, a patrol had getting in when uh, Red Hook was occupying the place. Pretty much, yeah, pretty much all of Savash's plans revolve around at some point. Savash himself will be the lockpick that breaks the lock. Keep fucking dreaming, buddy, am I right? <laughs> Fulbert has been doing this whole detailed, on this map in front of the two of them, has been doing this whole detailed point-to-point plan, laying out uh, various points of ambush using the terrain around the capital and everything. Savash has been pretty well behaved so far, has been 
sending out attendants to set up their own adjustments and their own harebrained schemes to set off alongside the plan. But then, in the final moments of Fulbert's, uh, I guess, penultimate attack, some kind of false attack to draw defenses and then attack from another angle, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Savash just interrupts and is like, oh, let's just do this, though. And then just does the classic, draws a straight line between where their camp is and where their target is, like some kind of monstrous idiot. Excuse me for asking, but how is this at all different from the initial charge when you arrived here? And how can we expect different results? I want your plan to continue alongside this. I want it to be not only a two-pronged attack, but a three-pronged attack. Which is another one of those ideas that sounds great and clever to Savash, but in practice, if they were to actually plan it out, they would pretty quickly find that they did not have the resources for that, as they probably barely have the resources for the two-pronged attack. The, the more prongs we have, the more flanks we, we have exposed. And never mind the... You're not thinking of the third dimension, the, the archers they have up high. True. We'll need to redirect the shield carriers to this third unit then, which probably sends the final attendant scurrying from the room, just leaving Fulbert and the Overlord in the flickering candlelight. Savash, I have followed every instruction, I have followed every demand ever since I took my father's place. Then continue to do so. If I do so today, nearly every weasel that that marches under your banner and mine beside it will not be marching back. Or they just completely ignore him and just keep revising the map while they're dagger, their own execution sword, let's say, glitters tantalizingly in the firelight. Fulbert is going to see that there, there is no, there, there is nothing left to say, there is nothing to be done, so uh, uh, with a deep breath and a small sigh, he, he will like put on his helmet and take his place walking with the columns, and by the time, like, he is in the, the, the place that was commanded. He's seeing in front of him every prediction he had, uh, th- those voiced and those left unsaid. It is disastrous. And uh, there, there are soldiers from his own tunnel and, and that you know survived the collapse of, of other regiments and units to join up with him that, that he's come to know. Uh, and they are screaming their last, echoing around inside his, his helmet. What is the last uh, uh, order he gets from another one of these runners cu- coming back from uh, Savash's like uh, uh, study of the battle map back back at camp? Um, great question. Probably something extremely blithe and uncaring, like keep charging. Just the worst possible thing. <laughs> and and like with the sense that Savash isn't even watching the battle, it's just more of a you-can-do-it bud than anything that, like, yeah. actively that that actually reflects the situation at hand. That's an interesting point. Maybe Savash has even degraded to a point past participating in battle themselves and is now just viewing the map and pieces before them as the battle itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nothing but a shadow and a husk. So, as the snowbanks around Copperwood turn deeper and deeper red that that helmet of Fulbert's uh, hits 
hits the, the muddy, trodden uh, uh, ground, and he hefts his spear and rushes uh, uh, back and flings it, uh, uh, just throwing like, you know, a champion, you know, javelin thrower. And the way this looks back in the tent, right? We see Savage from behind in silhouette, uh, uh, lit by, by torches before them. They stand and cannot escape. They, they try, they, they see this spear uh, uh, coming toward them. They try to turn, but something about their, their hip does not pivot the way it used to ever since receiving that uh, wound from Marx. And so the, the spear pierces directly through the body of Savage. <gasps> what are their last words? What, what are their last actions? Like, this is not instant death, but it is certain death. I don't think there are any words. I think they just weakly turn and clutch at the map with their hand that's still missing a thumb, courtesy of Marx as well. So as Fulbert follows his spear, he sees this, this bloody paw print streaked across the map, and he is ashamed ashamed of himself. He has betrayed everything he, he believed in. The, the battle has ceased, and the, the sounds are, are just echoing, echoing through the forest into the distance as those who can survive uh, uh, pull back under the order of, of lower officers. As they reach Fulbert, he has made a decision. He has decided that a, a weasel society that could come to this moment, that could bring him to, to this betrayal of himself, is not one that ought to continue. Uh, he, he scrawls a, a short sentence in mouse language that he learned from his isle, and he pins it to, to the flap of Savash's tent, and orders all weasel kind to travel west, far west, beyond the edge of Tunnelstone, never to be seen in the mouse territories again. The job of a tenderpaw was to learn from the more experienced. Taryn was beginning to think that the job of a guard's mouse was to realize that learning never stops. She learned a trick from Saxon that saved her skin outside Doragift. She knew just enough about turtles to solve a crisis at Donrock, and her old mentor Rand reminded her to always remember what she fights for. That was the advice that kept her awake during Nightwatch, in warm and sleet and storms. Bago had been fighting this war since he was a child. Everything fell apart after they failed to keep Lockhaven. Bago put on a brave face with his spear contacts, and they returned the favor. But everyone knew they were running scattered. War came. Victory came. But the spear was broken, and it was a bloodbath at the top. The money mice couldn't take the heat, and even the true believers turned snitches. Not Bago. His name got named plenty of times, but he was always a day or two out of town. He deserved a medal for the work he put into expelling the weasels from the territories. Instead, he got hounded like an animal. So he went to the animals. Surely a badger could be persuaded to crack open that stone keep? The, the bats must want vengeance for the broken treaty. In 1154, Bago crossed into wild country, seeking to raise a skulk of foxes to storm Lockhaven. It was his last plan. Each night, the seer dreamed of flame. War touched Wolf Point as some hardy hunters left for the front, more than replaced by the mice who sought the farthest settlement from any weasel tunnel. 
Juniper gave them each her blessing and her welcome, but the only prophecy she saw was flame. It still came, even after weeks without taking the fruit. Too much. She took a torch in the night and went to Reginald's fields. The grasses were dry above the snow. Every sacred plant burned. Not only Reginald's, but her own garden too, and any other she could find. The best prophecies are self-fulfilling. Some weeks after Granny arranged her second retirement, but not too many, it began. The war was over, there was no final battle, no peace summit. Overlord Fulbert led his weasels beyond all known territory and left a simple note, may we never meet again. With no more assaults to plan or feats to engineer, Ivy Waxwort took the stairs to her small chamber beneath the hive. Granny, the war came as no surprise to you of all people, but did anything during it catch you off guard? Um, I think quite a few things caught me off guard. The very first being that little mouse who led the charge on the seaside palace. Uh, Tander's bravery was excellent. I believe he proved to be a very useful mouse to throughout the war. And honestly, Granny's pretty proud of him. I think it caught her a little off guard how quickly the weasels got to Lockhaven. Mm-hmm. Like, a couple cities fell, like, right away in the war. But they didn't keep pushing through the cities of the territories much. There were some assaults here and there, but they basically beelined for Lockhaven. Like, there was some... Like, the guard was the only thing that they considered a threat. She expected them to be more... pillagey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Less... less like an actual organized war front. The weasels mostly seem to act on, like, violent impulse in her eyes. So this was an unusual event. A couple of notable casualties that caught Granny's eye. His old father Thomas apparently passed away, perhaps beyond the territories or at the edge of them. His body was found in Ferndale, which means he was breaking his, uh, banishment, but... Honestly, the man was a coward and Granny expected it. Another mouse that she didn't expect to see on the list, Gero. Gero was a small character in the course of the war. A man who helped assemble a bridge and eventually assembled a militia to try and help fend off the weasels. Being from the far southeast part of the territories, Granny kind of assumed that nobody around there would ever see any action, but apparently he passed away. He led the defense of Walnut Peck. A shame, but a valiant, a valiant cause, traveling far beyond his little home. But otherwise, it basically all went according to plan. <laughs> like, you never want a war. But if you have to plan for one, you want as few casualties as possible, you want to repel them, and you want to win. And we kinda got through all that. So Granny drifts off to sleep, a small part of her nose that is for the last time. As your eyelids nearly close, you see her again. It's Rosalind. She smiles, and she tells you just how proud she is of you and the young ones you nurtured. Oh. You waited for me, dear. You're a saint. 
She takes you by the hand outside where a vulture waits, and you notice your bones don't creak as you walk toward it. The bird takes the two of you into its mouth and flies you to the gates of Seyan for a well-earned rest. And I think Granny kind of mumbles that under her breath, and it's her last words as she gently passes away in her sleep. Isabella and Robin found more joy than they expected when they moved back to Lockhaven. Rooms and work were plentiful. Nobody had to ask why, and they were tactful enough not to make a point of it. For years to come, the pies at holidays were finer, and the jokes a little cruder. But most of all, the halls of Lockhaven were warmed by the pride they had for their daughter Francisca, webmaster of the guard. Walnut Peck was abandoned in the early weeks of the war, but that changed with the coming of spring. Whispers had gone through the tunnels and camps and settlements between trusted creatures, those who believed in a world without the cycle of war. Lily and Isaiah live together in the old observatory now, with a corner that is Stencil's very own, looking after what they've built. With the exodus of the former weasels of Darkheather and the new scent barrier poured well east of the settlement, their community is left to itself, unknown to those carrying the old fears. Weasel, mouse, and other creatures beside call all their previous traditions into question in order to build a new society that works for them all as a unit, a new people. Today is Sable's annual-ish visit, welcome in exchange for helping arrange the whole thing, as Flip drops her upon her daughter's porch. She gives Isile a basket of lemon cakes. Lily is at home right now. She is down on the ground in her old cloak, using the legend of Thistle, the mouse unstuck from time, to scare away those who would spoil their haven's secret. And that's how it was, every word the truth. So long as you were listening properly, that is. <coughs> Make sure you keep all that, Roybin. Keep it in the archives with the myths and the legends. This infection has me, there's no denying it. I'll sleep in there, between the stories I told the young ones. They'll be writing the next volume. About the mice that made a new world, one tinged with our pain and made inside our failures. But we had our victories and our joys. When they build that next world, help those be their tools.